Good evening. Uh, my name is Jason. I'm the director of the house. And uh, before we get into uh, the sermon tonight, a um, couple things, few things. First, happy Easter. Christ is risen. What do you say when somebody says Christ is risen? That's right. He's risen indeed. We just sang a song. Would you put the, the chorus of that last song up real quick? Like, I'm going to get into the sermon super fast. That's right there. We're going to get into the sermon really quick. I got to be careful not to do this. But this is what we just sang. And like, golly, I don't think many of us believe this. This is what we're going to talk about tonight. Just leave that up there for a bit. I want us thinking about that. But a couple things real quick. One, um, this was announced. It's been announced the past few weeks. Um, the student internship applications are due. And uh, great people apply to that. I really want to encourage you to sign up for that. We love, love, love getting to walk with upperclassmen um, in college ministry. What does it look like to make disciples of other people? What does it look like to love our peers and those a little younger than us. Um, if you don't know this or nobody's ever told you, I, I'd love to tell you that Christ has called everybody in him to make disciples, every single one of us. If you are in Christ, you are qualified. So get to work, right? We got this opportunity there. One of the things in the midst of that though that we notice, and it's not just for student app internships, it's also for our full-time internships. We filled three positions for next year. Um, and one of the things that's a reality to us every year is the, um, the absolute anemic nature of male leadership. Year after year, fantastic women um, apply to be in leadership positions and are seeking out leadership positions. We see a number of them come through the ministry. Um, this year we had, I think, something like 12 or 13 women apply for two spots around the nation in our friendship with all sorts of college ministries. We see that happening, uh, which is you know, sort of tough news for women that don't get the internships, of course. Um, but one of the things that's also common is nobody has dudes applying. And it's not just unique to sort of, well, there's nothing, nothing like the house exactly. This is sort of a weird organization. But, uh, but, but even other organizations, when I talk to people in Young Life, when I talk to people in RUF, when I talk to people in Crew, when I talk to churches around the nation that have college ministries in their churches over and over and over again, what they're finding is so few men are applying for leadership positions and stepping up. I think there's many reasons for that, but men, we need you, okay? So anyway, thanks. Um, Right. Am I supposed to say anything else tonight? Oh, something else I want to say, because last week, man, if you were here last week, it was so great. It was beautiful. Um, and one of the things that I think was on my heart and Kirsten's heart, too, um, is she kind of shared some stuff at the end. Um, and we just don't say this enough, and we really ought to. Um, if you don't know, we've got a bunch of people on full-time staff. We have a number of fantastic student interns. Um, if you ever want to talk about Jesus, if you want to know what it means to become a Christian, if you, you want to know what it means to follow him, if you're on the fringes of your faith and you're like, I, I don't really know, like, and you want to talk, like, we'd love to talk to you. I'd love to talk to you and pray with you anytime. Uh, I sort of resist, I'm, I'm not like against it on principle, I don't think, but I sort of resist just a numbers game. Uh, well, I do resist things just as numbers games, but sort of doing a big altar call here and having people raise their hands, I'm just not all about that. Um, I, want us, I want to walk with you in a relationship with Christ. Um, and I want to know you over a number of years, and I want us to share life together. That's my hope, right? So if you ever want to talk about what that means or what that looks like, uh, I work here, and I'd be happy to talk, to point you to somebody else who's less intimidating or awkward or something, if that's what you want, okay? Um, and the other people that are up front, just come find them and say, talk to me about Jesus. That guy told me that you would. So, great. Okay, um, okay so tonight, uh, I, I want to invite you tonight um, to know God's love and his glory. That's sort of the, the thing about tonight. I want to invite you to know God's love and his glory. So last week, uh, whether you're here or not, last week I invited you to know the love of God in his suffering and in his humility, in his crucifixion and in the way he laid down his life, right? Today, in light of Easter, which just happened, we celebrated a couple days ago, I invite you to know just how much he loves you, just how much he knows what you desire, just how good he is by meditating on his glory, not his suffering, meditating on his glory. And so tonight I'm going to be talking about something that, quite frankly, I think is discussed far, far too little in the church. And so I know that I'm going to be stirring up new thoughts and probably a ton of questions. And I do not have time or space in this evening to address all of them. And so tonight what's going to happen is I'm going to be bouncing around a bunch of different scriptures I'm going to be talking about and incorporating quotations and thoughts from tons of Christians over thousands of years. Catholics, Anglicans, Reformed folks, like people from the first century all the way up into the, the, the last century. Tons and tons of people I'm going I'm to be combing through with you guys tonight. And the reason I'm doing that is because I know that I'm talking about something that doesn't get a lot of airtime today. It did. It used to. It doesn't today in our churches often. 
And I don't want you to think that I'm this solitary voice telling you something that hasn't been talked about before. So one of the things I'm wanting to do is sort of give you a scope of how this stuff is talked about in the scriptures and how much it's been talked about in the church. So there's gonna be a, just a, a slight bit of commentary from me as I try to cruise through a ton of different voices. So I would encourage you, I would actually encourage you to do this every week to bring your Bible or have it ready on your digital device is totally fine. Turn on an airplane mode or something so you don't get distracted. Uh, you, you, anyway, I'll let you deal with that. Um, and then, and take some notes. Be ready to take notes. Why would you come to something to hear the word of God proclaimed without any intention of walking out of this room thinking about it later and doing something in your life? So take some notes, right? I tell you to bring your Bibles, but you guys all have them on your phones probably. And some of you have it memorized now because we've been doing that this semester. Good job. Um, okay. Um, so uh, tomorrow, just so you guys know, I'm gonna be listing on the Facebook group for students. There's like a Facebook page. It's not that, that's like you like that. I think you have to request to join the student group. Uh, I think it's like closed so that we don't just get a ton of ads in there. Um, I'm on that Facebook group for students, I'm actually gonna be posting a ton of articles, book recommendations, some videos that all address what I'm talking about tonight in case you wanna dig in further. And I encourage you, to do it, I, I encourage you to do what the scriptures command us to do, to test everything, to test it. To take what I'm saying to you tonight and go back and look at the word of God and see, is that guy speaking truth or not? What is he saying? Because God will not contradict his word. So I encourage you to do that. I'm gonna put that on Facebook tomorrow, okay? There are a few things which I'm more excited to talk about oof, than the promises God has for us in the future, okay? So um, I really pray he's glorified in the way we talk, that he brings many of us to glory with him. Um, and that I stay tight to my notes and I don't go off them. Oof, because this could be a long night if I do. All right, let's pray, let's pray. Um, Father, uh, Son, and Holy Spirit, would you please help um, stir up our imaginations and our desires tonight. Help us to know um, who we are and what we want and long for. I pray that your spirit would be so good to us that we would be able to be honest about how satisfied we are with lovers far less wild and good as your son is to us. As I talk and I, and I go through so much scripture, Father, would you keep me faithful to your word? Would you keep my sin and my, my crazy imagination and the things that I want, would you keep the stuff that would deter people from knowing truth out of the way? You know I am prone to wander. Would you help me stay true and faithful to this? And I do pray, Father, I pray that you would give people hope, real substantive hope in your promises tonight. May you be glorified and may we look back on conversations like this one day and rejoice that we were right and be so thankful that you are right. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I wanna start tonight um, by asking, did you guys up there get a video? Did you end up getting that video on the thing? It's like a really, um, I should, maybe I shouldn't say this. It's like a super cheesy video. So if we don't have it, I wouldn't mind. God dang it. Okay, well, let's play it. And some of you guys are going to think I'm such a cynic and, and something for, for thinking this is cheesy because I actually sort of get emotional during it, but I have a hard time with that. So, because I want to like punch myself and make fun of myself for it. So let's watch this. It's like a minute and 30 some seconds. Probably one of you shared it on Facebook. That's where I found it. Thank you. Uh, let's go. This is what they felt like when it happened. And today, it's how we should feel too. Because what it meant for them 
it means for us. Okay, I just got to move on. Let's do this. Okay, so here's the question. Here's the question that I have in, in light of watching that video, in light of singing the song we just sang before I got up. Here's the question. Why do we imagine that the followers of Jesus reacted that way to the resurrection? Whether you would react that way now on a, on a text message or not, that's the rest of the sermon, okay? But, but just for a minute, I think we all believe or all, all think that, it, that these friends of Jesus acted super excited when they believed that he rose from the dead. They weren't expecting it. It was a huge surprise. Like the, the, the gospel writers even tell us that the first few witnesses to the resurrection didn't even believe it because they didn't think it was coming. When they did, they were overjoyed. They actually kept their doubt in the front of them because they didn't want to get so excited about it. Like you can think of Thomas, if you know the story of Thomas. I'm going off my notes, I gotta be careful. Uh, you think of the story of Thomas where Thomas is like, I'm not gonna believe it until I see him, right? And when they did, they were overjoyed. Why were they so excited? You could argue that they were excited because they got to spend a few more weeks with their friend again. And I think you'd be right. But is that it? I think you could also argue that, that, that Jesus rising from the dead, demonstrating his power over death, affirmed and authenticated his power over sin. And I think if you think that's why they were excited, you would be right. We really are forgiven in him, right? Amen. But I don't think that's all. I don't think that's the only reason people are excited. I, I don't know who made that video. They said like Igniter or something on there. Um, I don't think the people that made that thought, man, all these people, are, they're imagining all these people getting so excited because their sins are just forgiven. Although I, I should be careful saying just, that is a massive deal. <laughs> I think they also rejoiced because of what the resurrection of Jesus meant for their future. That's why. Many of us went to Easter services last week and I think we heard sermons, if we went to, to Easter services, about Jesus Christ rising from the dead. Good, I'm really glad you did, right? If you did, I'm glad you did. Your church probably should have talked about that if they didn't, okay? For the resurrection of Jesus, attested to by hundreds of eyewitnesses, recorded in various historical accounts, within decades of his death and resurrection and ascension. That single fact is the greatest one in all of history. Jesus rising from the dead is the single greatest fact in all of human history. It is the very corner upon which all history turns. But what does it mean for us? What does it mean for me today? What does it have to do with my daily life? What, 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 what am I looking forward to in light of the resurrection? Am I just looking back, right? The apostle Paul tells us that if Christ did not rise from the dead, if he didn't rise bodily from the grave, what does that mean? He says it means our hope is in vain. That our hope is empty and pointless that take everything we're talking about and throw it out. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, this thing is a joke, is what Paul says. You see, I think he had in mind the promises of God that will only take place if, in fact, Jesus rose from the dead. Why? Would you put up 1 Corinthians 15, 20? We're gonna start going through some stuff. So take some notes or open your Bibles or something, right? Why? Why did he have in mind promises of God that will only take place if Jesus rises from the dead? Because the first promise is that we too will rise from the dead if he does, right? He says this, he says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ has been raised from the dead and he says he's the first fruits of those who have died. First fruits. That's an agricultural term. Some of you may know this, some of you may not, right? It's an agricultural term. It's the first crop of a harvest that signifies what's to come. The first fruits, essentially, it's a, like a farmer would do this with their crop. They would bring into the house the first of the harvest and look at it and examine it, and, and, and it would be a sign of how good the harvest that's coming is. When Paul says that Jesus in his resurrection is the first fruits of those who have died, he means that what we saw 
what we saw and what is true in Jesus's resurrection, we can expect for us. That we, what we see in him, we will see in us. One ancient theologian actually says that what we should imagine is that the, and this is actually very true language, but we should imagine it sort of in a more, in in an image or in a picture that the head has risen up out of the ground and the body is coming after it. That's what we should imagine. That's, Paul says that one of the reasons that we need to trust that Jesus actually rose from the dead is because if he didn't rise from the dead, we aren't gonna rise from the dead. For who has the power to bring somebody back to life except for one who has power over death? Have you ever seen somebody who has power over death? History has not, friends. There are tales that are not attested to. There are tales with zero eyewitness accounts, you know, these kinds of things. Legends and lore. We have one with hundreds of eyewitness accounts and written record over and over and over and at least over again. We have this. And Paul says, if he rises from the dead, we too will follow. The first promise secured in the resurrection of Jesus is our own resurrection. Death is not the end. We too will rise, but that's not it. This is gonna get bigger and bigger and bigger. Let's look at Romans chapter eight, verses 18 through 25, where Paul says this. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. It hasn't been revealed yet. It's still, we're still waiting in our, it's still waiting out for us in our future, right? Paul's looking toward this. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. Now by, by creation, he means everything which isn't God and everything which isn't humankind. So what's waiting for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God? We can think of uh, trees and animals and angels and mountains and stars or, or things like this and so forth, right? Everything that's not God and human is waiting for us. Why? 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, Adam, mankind, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have, again, this word, the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons and daughters. That's what the word means. The redemption of our bodies. So get this, we're waiting still for bodily, bodily redemption, Paul says. For in this hope we were saved. What hope? Bodily redemption. Just go back and look at the verses. Bodily redemption, realized adoption as children of God and all creation set free with us. What is the hope in which we were saved? Bodily redemption, realized adoption as children of God and all of creation set free with us. And he says, now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we don't see, we wait for it with patience. Okay, so get this. So the promise is not only in Jesus' resurrection. It's not only our own bodily resurrection, but also a relational reality with God and cosmic freedom, which hangs upon our own. I don't know if that's big enough yet, but he's got more to say. What is it, why is it that people ought to be excited, that Christians ought to be excited about Jesus' resurrection? Yes, because it affirms and validates and authenticates that he has power. If he has power over death, it shows us that he might be right when he says he has power over sin as well. Amen for that. But it also means resurrection to come, freedom on a cosmic or universal scale and a relational reality with God. And Peter, the, uh, Peter, the apostle Peter has more to say in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. He says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. According to his great mercy, not because of your work, not because of your effort, not because you earned it, because of his mercy, that's it. Because of his mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How has he caused us to be born to this living hope? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And you see that, that our hope is through the resurrection, Peter says. Peter sees that resurrection speaks to this hope. What hope? He'll get to it right here, right? To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. 
kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, friends. What do you rejoice in? An inheritance which is kept imperishable for you and in the fact that you are being guarded for a salvation which has yet to be revealed. Though now, he says, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. When? At the revelation of Christ Jesus. If he didn't rise from the dead, he wouldn't be able to come again, right? <laughs> he did rise. So all the promises that hang on his return logically just make sense if he's still alive. And so, so, so far, here's what we've covered, right? The resurrection points to our bodily redemption, to a relational reality with God, to cosmic freedom, to an inheritance which is guarded for us, all coming when Jesus returns in glory. All of this through the resurrection. This is huge language, Massive language. I think hard for any of us to get our imaginations to even come close to the, to the sides of this sucker that we might wrap our brains around it. But I want us to see it get even bigger, <laughs> okay? And because I, I think what we're about to read now is one of the clearest pictures of the hope set before us as Christians. It comes from this revelation given to John in the latter half of the first century. Listen to it, but, but I actually want to encourage you to try to picture it. Not just in words, but try as hard as you can to, to like, put some clothing on this sucker as we read it, okay? It's from Revelation chapter 21, verses one through seven. This is what John saw in his vision, given to him from Jesus. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with mankind. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said this, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. You can think of the word inheritance again there. And I will be his God and he will be my son or she will be my daughter. Think about these promises for the future for a minute. If you can picture them, heaven dwells on earth. Earth doesn't go to heaven. Heaven dwells on earth. It's already happened once. Heaven dwells on earth, no longer separated. The people of God without blemish. God dwelling in the flesh with his people forever. Them reigning over all creation. No more death, no more sorrow, no more pain. All of this, all of this, we see promised in the resurrection of Jesus. Has it gotten big enough yet? I'm cherry-picking some of the huge passages of Scripture, y'all, okay? But the promises of God are riddled throughout history, and they're kept for us in the Scriptures that we might know them, and in just a few passages, I think I only read three or four, we already know some of the scope of these promises that we are invited to trust in through the resurrection of Jesus, that His resurrection means ours, that being glorified in our resurrection releases the, somehow releases the rest of creation from its bondage and God will make it new. And our resurrection means we can inhabit the new earth. And inhabiting the new earth means we will dwell with God with no more death and no more sorrow forever in our bodies. And we have all these promises secured for us in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. But all of these promises will only be fully realized when we the earth and the heavens are made new. The resurrected, the resurrected transformed body is not the only promise for Christians, friends, but it is the foundational promise. And I, I think the primary condition upon which all the other promises can be had. If, we, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, neither will we be raised from the dead. And if we are not raised from the dead, then which of these promises can we actually have? 
This is why we imagine the early church rejoicing in the resurrection. Yes, because they had a few weeks with Jesus again. Yes, that surely that is why some of the ones closest to him rejoiced. Yes, because it assured them that his teachings were true and that, that the forgiveness of sins can be secured in him, but also, and I think mostly, because of what the resurrection still means for us as we look forward. Which is why that video said, do we respond, do we respond in the same way to I will rise, I will rise because he is risen? Do we still respond in the same way because the promises are the same for us? And I think what's so staggering for me as I thought about tonight, this sermon, what's so staggering to me is how few of us have heard of this stuff. First and foremost, how few of us have heard of the bodily resurrection, of a, a future bodily resurrection. You will not, friend, be a disembodied spirit floating around in the clouds forever. You will not. You will be raised in the self-same body that you are sitting in now. But for those of you, and for those of you in Christ, your body will be transformed, but it won't be another body that's transformed. This body will be transformed. It will be your body that you have now, but without any blemish and having donned, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, having donned an immortal quality. Do I have any idea what that means? No, except for when I look at Christ, I think it's something like his resurrected body. This idea is not only foundational in the scriptures, okay? It's foundational in the scriptures. It's littered throughout early church history. So listen to some of what our church fathers had to say about our hope of the resurrection. I'm, we're just gonna go through, let's see, one, two, three, four, five quotes. Spanning from before the first century was over up to about 400. All of this is before the Middle Ages began. These are the kinds of things being said in early church history about the resurrection. How often are you talked to? How often do you talk about? How often do you study or think about? How often do you imagine being resurrected in your physical body? Let's look at some of these quotes. Would you show up that first one for me? From Clement of Rome, somewhere, he died in like 99, so it's somewhere before that. I just guessed on 90, okay? Uh, the master, it means Jesus, is continually proving to us that there will be a future resurrection of which he has made the Lord Jesus Christ the firstling. It's a similar idea of the first fruits, right? That Jesus is the first, we should expect something similar for all of us following. By raising him from the dead, Clement of Rome. Okay, next. From Chrysostom, I love Chrysostom. Even if the soul remains being infinitely immortal, without the flesh, it will not receive those hidden blessings. If the body does not rise again, the soul remains uncrowned with the blessings stored up for it in heaven. In that case, we have nothing to hope for and our rewards are limited just to this life. And you know what Paul said? If we have hope in this life only, anybody know what he said? We of all people are most to be pitied. That's what Paul said. What could be more wretched than that? If you believe, as Chrysostom says, if you believe that just your soul remains immortal, but you will not be united again with your body in the resurrection. St. Chrysostom, the Apostle Paul, argues what could be more wretched than that for you would be a disembodied spirit floating around watching everybody else with bodies inherit promises that you can't have. Let's go to the next one. From Origen, 250 AD. Some people really don't like this guy, but he's a big voice. Let's read him. In regard to our bodily nature, we must understand that there is not one body which we now use in lowliness and corruption and weakness and a different one which we are to use hereafter in incorruption and power and glory. Rather, this same body, having cast off the weaknesses of its present existence, will be transformed into a thing of glory and made spiritual, which doesn't mean like ghost, okay? Anyway, neither does flesh mean physical in the scriptures. It means sinful or holy. You should think more like that categorizing. When, when Paul talks about waging war against the flesh, he doesn't actually mean he goes into the back and whips himself. That's not what he means. It's all of me that is not following Jesus as Lord, following Jesus as Lord God, who is in his essence spirit, although now is also flesh forever. Friend, he has dignified you so much by becoming like you, <laughs> okay? But spiritual in this sense means a godly. Okay, we should think that way, all right? Oh, where was I? Okay, we will be, trans well, we'll be transformed into a thing of glory and made spiritual with the result that what was a vessel of dishonor shall itself, not a different one, not a different body, this body, shall itself be purified and become a vessel of honor and a habitation of blessedness. Let's go to the next one. From, from Augustine or Augustine, take a pick. People are amazed that God 
Are, are you, are, I want to ask you this, because you might hear similar arguments today if you start Googling questions about resurrection. You start having, like I have this problem sometimes where I hear of somebody, I think about how hard it is for God to probably resurrect a body from the grave. And then I think, well, that's gonna be super hard for somebody who like was cremated and their ashes are like spread over an ocean. And like, and then like their the cows like feed on grass and like is somebody like pooped out of a cow and then in the sky. And I start thinking about the, the recycling of all the earth's materials. And I'm like, how is God gonna do this? And you might think nobody thinks that, I do. Um, and, uh, and then Augustine is addressing similar questions, probably with better language back then. He says this, people are amazed that God who made all things from nothing makes a heavenly body from human flesh. When he was in the flesh, did not the Lord make wine from water? Is it anything so much more wonderful if he makes a heavenly body from human flesh? Is he who is able to make you when you did not exist, not able to make over what you once were? Let's go to the next one. I think this is the last one. From Gregory of Nazianzus. Why am I so earthly in my thoughts? Oh, this is one of my favorites. Okay, here's why. Check this out. He's writing about his dead brother. He's writing about his dead brother. And he's thinking about the promises of God as they apply to his dead brother. So when, when I'm talking about what is the hope that you have in the resurrection, Gregory thought this is some of the hope he had in the resurrection. Listen to the kind of conviction that he had about the promises of God, okay? Why am I so earthly in my thoughts? You can think of him writing in a journal. I shall await the voice of the archangel, the last trumpet, the transformation of heaven and the change of the earth, the freedom of the elements. That's the, the, the release from bondage of captivity in Romans 8. That's what he means there, right? The freedom of the elements. The renewal of the universe. He's waiting for all that. Then I shall see my brother, Caesarius himself, no longer in exile, no longer being buried, no longer mourned, no longer pitied, but splendid, glorious, sublime, such as you were often seen in a dream, dearest and most loving of brothers, whether my desire or truth itself represented you. What hope do you have in the resurrection, friend? When you think of Jesus rising from the dead, when you sing a song that says, I will live, I will live because Christ rose from the dead. What does that mean to you? How do we, I'm not trying to shame you here. I mean, I don't, I want to jog us into some kind of like realization that we don't believe this stuff. That I could stand here and say, I will rise, I will rise. And I'm checking texts and I'm bored or I'm just waiting or I, I'm distracted or something. Do you not hope to see loved ones that have died again? Do you not hope for a body without sin? without blemish? Do you not hope for a time with no more sorrow and no more pain and no more death in all the world? Do you not have a desire sometimes to go, why can't I just see God face to face and ask him these questions myself? And I go, good, I'm glad you desire that because he's promised to do that one day. Don't you ever do away with that desire. But it would sort of be silly to demand that you're supposed to get that here when we're still waiting for the last time to come. But don't do away with the desire. How does the promise of the resurrection vivify you? How does it bring you to life? What does it make you think about? Do you hear in these words of this guy and maybe the others, right? The utter confidence and dependence upon the resurrection of the physical body, not floating off in la-la land, heavenly clouds playing harps or something, I don't know, right? They are not talking, these guys, think about these, this language that you've heard me read from the scriptures, from people in the ancient church for four centuries. You do not hear them talking about dying and being with Christ in spirit. They're talking about a hope in seeing God, seeing others, and receiving blessings in their bodies after death. Somewhere in the Middle Ages, okay, what began creeping into the forefront, it had been there forever, but what, and it's still here, but what began creeping into the forefront of the church more and more is the idea that the body is bad and the spirit is good. This is not a biblical idea. It's not. Do you know the story of the Bible? Do you know how it began? It began right with God creating the heavens and what? The earth. And do you know what he said about the earth? He said, it's good. He said, it's good. And when he created the first humans, he created them in flesh and he breathed life and spirit into them. And do you know what he said when he created humans in bodies? Yeah, he said, it's very good. In the middle of the story of all of history, we find God actually becoming flesh. 
the word who was God and the word who is with God and the word through whom, by whom, and for whom all things were made. That word became flesh, John 1, 14, became flesh and dwelt among us. If it were so bad, why'd he do it? Why'd he tie himself to physicality forever and ever and ever? At the end of the story, do you know how it ends? We just read some of it, right? God again creates this time recreates rather than creates from nothing. He makes heaven and earth new again. The beginning, the middle, the end, all of it affirm the goodness and the beauty of God's creation. We don't find a story, friends, of God escaping physicality or creation. We don't find a story of, of him asking people to jump off a burning ship. All of this around us, my body, food, mountains, trees, my dog, uh, all these things, all of this is going to hell in a handbasket. So let's get people saved. That's not the story of the scriptures. That's not the story we find from beginning to end in the Bible. We don't find, this is something I talk about a lot, we don't find that our sin and the devil have won so great a victory that God has to do something else. We don't find that story. We actually find it so much more amazing than, than God even undoing evil because what we find in the end is not that God started over even. He, we, we, you start in the garden, right? You end in what? A city. You start with God dwelling between two rivers with people and then you find him dwelling with his people over all the earth. You find him dwelling with just two initially. You find him with all tribes and tongues in the end. God is actually able to incorporate all of every, all amounts of history, all good, all bad. He's able to incorporate that for the good of his people in the end. He's so good. And his goodness in the end and at the beginning, in the middle, affirm the, the, the beauty of the, physical, the physical nature of his creation, right? Let me, let me look at two more ancient quotes real quick. One from Augustine, another one from Chrysostom again. These are big, big voices. This spiritual body, he put in quotes, will not only be better than any body on earth in perfect health, but will surpass that of Adam or Eve before their sin. Let's go to the next one. In God's plan, things keep getting better. This is why Paul says that the lesser things have already come to pass and that the better ones are on their way. For the farmer, seeing the grain dissolving does not mourn. The farmer throwing the seed on the ground, seeing it begin to sort of split open and not look so bright and shiny and secure anymore. He doesn't mourn. Why? Because he knows what's coming in the death of that seed. We will not forever be in some cloudland playing harps, okay? The promises in the scriptures are that we will be humans, not angels. You don't say people died and they're angels now. They're different, they're, they're a different creation. We will be humans, glorified and dignified and reigning with our king and our groom. For we who are in Christ are the bride, we are the church. We are corporately feminine to our Lord. We will be a people. We will have the earth and all creation and we will live with our king in the flesh and we will have a life which embodies the kingdom. No more sorrow, no more death, with everyone rich in kindness and outdoing one another in honor. Friend, it would do you well to picture it and to be reminded of it often. This is the hope you have in the resurrection. It litters the pages of scripture. God's promises, they do. They litter the pages of scripture. Promises of life together. Promises of life without drudgery. Promises of feasting and not famine. Promises of security and not insecurity. Promises of no more death. Can you imagine that? Imagine what you would do differently with your life if there was no more sin or insecurity and no more death. What would you cease panicking about if you didn't have to worry about sustenance and security anymore? If you didn't have to worry about identity anymore because it was satisfied and nobody was dying? Imagine it, what would you do? For some of us, I think we find it difficult to imagine. I think we find it difficult for two reasons. But for some of us, I think we find it difficult because we didn't know we were allowed to do it. Listen to this for just a second. This is a quote from a guy named J.C. Ryle, an Anglican dude. He said this, the man who's about to sail for Australia or New Zealand as a settler is naturally anxious to know something about his future home, its climate, its employments, its inhabitants, its ways, its customs. All these are subjects of deep interest to him. 
You are leaving the land of your nativity and you're going to spend the rest of your life in a new hemisphere. It would be strange indeed if you did not desire information about your new abode. Right? Now surely if we hope to dwell forever in the better country, the author of Hebrews calls it, we ought to seek all the knowledge we can get about it. Before we go to our eternal home, we should try to become acquainted with it. Doesn't that make sense? Christian, if your hope is in the life to come that you want to know something about it, all semester we've been talking about Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapters 5 through 7, giving us a picture of the kingdom, that one of the things that I'm doing as I'm studying it and looking at it is I'm going, God, are you giving me a picture of what eternal life can look like with a redeemed people? I want that. With no more murder, where people are keeping anger in check, reconciling quickly, with no lust, where everybody means what they say, where nobody feels insecure because somebody else seems to be more righteous than somebody else or something, and nobody's anxious, and people aren't judging each other. They're loving everybody. Do you know that God tells us so much about the life to come? And you have permission, you have permission, friends, to hope and to dream and to wonder and to imagine. Quite frankly, I think we're told to do all that. For others of us, though, I think we find it difficult simply because it's just a muscle we haven't strengthened very much. Our imaginations are anemic and weak. We've, we spend so much energy stuffing our desires and our hopes because we're afraid they'll never be fulfilled that we set our sights lower, avoiding failure and avoiding disappointment. And so it's hard for us to imagine and to dream because we've trained ourselves to not do it. Listen to this. This is the way another pastor, a contemporary pastor, speaks of our imagination in the life to come. He says this. He said, some may think it really silly or sentimental to suppose that nature, animals, painting books, or a baseball bat might be resurrected. It may appear to trivialize the coming resurrection. I would suggest that it does exactly the opposite. It elevates resurrection, emphasizing the power of Christ to radically renew mankind and far more. God promises to resurrect not only humanity, but also the creation that fell as a result of our sin. Remember that from Romans chapter eight? Because God will resurrect the earth itself, we know that the resurrection of the dead extends to things that are inanimate. Even some of the works of our hands done to the glory of God will survive. I may be mistaken in the details, but scripture is clear that in some form at least, what's done on earth to Christ's glory will survive. Our error has not been in overestimating the extent of God's redemption and resurrection, but in underestimating it. Your imagination, friends, is a great gift that God has given you, and I swear to you, he is stirring it up often in his pages of scripture. I swear to you. And when you see examples of the church alive, doing redemptive, beautiful work in the world, it's supposed to stir up our imagination. I, I had a conversation with a friend last night, and I actually told him, First time we ever hung out, just one-on-one, -on -one, this guy and I, and I told him, I said, this kind of stuff, it makes me excited for the resurrection. These kinds of conversations, these kinds of moments make me excited. Why? Because I believe that this is the kind of stuff that we'll get to do in the resurrection where we will no longer be frustrated by sin and death and insecurity and, and a lack of resources and all this other stuff that entangles us so easily. I want to imagine it and picture it. Do you know how we're taught, we're taught to pray the Lord's Prayer, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven today. How can I begin to pray that if I don't imagine what kingdom come looks like? It would behoove you to imagine that. Practically speaking, take your roommates or your friendships or your family or your job or your school. How would you be a student in the resurrection? Because we're gonna study in the resurrection, friends. You are not gonna ever know everything. Only God is omniscient. So do, do away with any weird, silly lie that you're gonna know everything in, in heaven. That's stupid. That's not true. We're gonna study. What, what, what kind of student will you be in the resurrection? With no more sin. With no insecurity. We're, we're, regardless of your IQ, because we also don't have a promise that all of us are gonna be the same IQ level in the resurrection. Maybe, but there's just no promise for that, so I don't know what to do with it. How will you study? So when I'm sitting here studying and I pray, God, your kingdom come, your will be done, one of the exercises for me is to imagine, based on what I know in the scriptures and the history of the church, imagine what it would be like to be a student in the kingdom of heaven in its fullness. And how can I begin to incorporate that now? Not only because it begins to proclaim to people around me what Christ's kingdom looks like, but it begins to do battle against my own sin and reaffirms and assures my hope in what's to come. 
If I'm a friend of yours, one of the practices that I want to do often is go, God, how would I communicate with this person in the new creation? When we're untangled by sin and we're in the flesh forever and ever with no more death, what kinds of things will we say and do together? And how might I pray and then see realized your kingdom coming now? And I'm going off my notes. Your imagination's a good gift. That's what I'm trying to say, okay? He gives you pictures of the new heavens and the new earth. I don't think he gives them to you though because they suffice. They don't. Listen to this. My wife, okay? And I'm not trying to be too like gender roles here, okay? This is just a reality in my life right now, okay? My wife does not tell me about dinner <laughs> um, because she thinks it's gonna satisfy my hunger. She doesn't call me up and say, hey, making this for dinner tonight. Just want you to know, be home at 5.30 or something. She actually tells me to be home at like five because she knows I won't be there till 5.30. Um, that's some of my sin. In the new creation, I won't be late like that. Um, so I need to do that now. Okay, forgive me, God. Um, okay, I need to learn about that. Anyway, next. Uh, so she tells me about dinner, not because she thinks that in telling Jason about what dinner is tonight, that, that he's gonna go, cool, I'm not even hungry anymore. That I'm gonna give him a picture of dinner so that he, he isn't hungry. Do you see that it's precisely the opposite? That she would call me to tell me about a wonderful feast and, and ask me to imagine the community around a table, not because she thinks it will stifle my hunger, but that it would awaken it, that it would stir it up, that it would make me want to go, I got to pack up and go because I want to be home. Do you see that she gives me visions and pictures to, to not to satisfy, but to stir up my desire? Do you see that? And the more I picture it, the, the more I picture that, that, that feast and that company, the more likely I am not to deviate on my way home, right? The more likely I am not to stop somewhere along the way and satisfy myself with some fast food the more likely I am to not give in to despair, wondering if I'll ever get home or ever get full. That gets to be dramatic, but you see what I'm doing with that, right? That if I don't have the image of it and I don't imagine it, I, I sometimes begin to think, am I ever gonna get out of here? When am I gonna eat? And I start getting plagued by anxiety and doubts that I don't know where they're going to be satisfied. If you think that the resurrection is only told to us or we only know about it because of Christ's power to forgive sins. You've only heard half the story. The early church rejoiced in the resurrection because of what's to come. And if you forget this, if you forget the promises that God laid out for you or you don't know it, two things will surely happen in your life, friends. And it would be worth asking if they typify your experience. First, you will despair. You will. You will wonder what the point of it all is. You will wonder how you will ever be satisfied because you have not thought that about God already taking care of all you desire. You will not meditate on the inheritance that he has set aside for you and kept unfading, undefiled, and imperishable for you. And you will not think that that's going to address all your desires and so you will despair. Wondering if you're ever going to get home or if you're ever going to be full. Second, the second thing you'll do is you'll try to manage your life. Like me stopping off at a fast food restaurant on the way home to dinner because I forgot that there was a meal waiting for me. You will manage. You will find ways to secure whatever you can get now because you don't believe the promises of God are good enough. And so you'll spend your life trying to get what you can before you die. And you'll have a massive bucket list that's an utter waste of time because you're still going to die. And if you don't believe in the promises of God, how is traveling to that place or doing this thing going to satisfy you truly moments before your death and make you think, you know what? All the pain and suffering in this world and the, what is likely mid-70s years that I'll live, totally worth it. If your life is plagued with despair, if your life is busy with managing desires and frantically grasping at things to satisfy you because you don't think God ever will, Friend, I encourage you to consider the promises that he has for you. And I'm sorry that we don't teach on that a lot. We ought to as a church. It riddled the New Testament. The first few hundred years of the church were alive with these promises. Do you know the most widely disseminated letter of the New Testament in the first and second century was the, was the letter of Revelation that we call Revelation? Many of you would stay away from that sucker your whole life if you could. But the first 200 years of the church, that's what everybody wanted to get their hands on because it spoke to the future hope that they believed was theirs. Our God, Paul says, can do immeasurably more than anything we can ever ask or imagine. And we don't balk at that. 
We don't go, he can do more, so I'm not even going to imagine it. May it never be. Rather, let us dive in, okay? Knowing we're never going to hit the bottom. We cannot out God's grace in the suffering of our Lord. You cannot out God's grace on the cross and his mercy on the cross. You cannot. And you cannot out-imagine his goodness and the provision that he has for you in his glory. You cannot. So I invite you, friend, to consider God's promises for you who are in him, in the new heavens and the new earth. And may we be a people who, because of our great hope in what's to come, wait patiently for the Lord and persevere in our faith, knowing that the work that we have before us is not in vain because we will rise, we will rise with him. We will. There's so many questions, I'm sure, on the table. There's so many things I'd love to talk about more. I'm gonna post a bunch of stuff on that Facebook group tonight or tomorrow to hopefully stir up your imagination and address some of your questions and give you places to like jump in and begin to consider what the historical church has, has had as an arterial vein in our history. It's a huge dogma in the church, huge. The resurrection of our bodies because of Jesus and what it means for all of us. This is the promises set before us. We're gonna respond to this stuff in praise and we're gonna take communion tonight together, all right? But let's pray before we get into that. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I thank you, thank you, thank you that you rose from the dead in, 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 in public. Paul said it didn't happen in the corner of an empire. It happened in front of the known world at the time. And I thank you for all the promises that you have tied to your resurrection that we don't even guess, but that, if, that Jesus has said what it means. And because he is the one who has power over death and power over sickness and power over demons and spoke with authority about the history of the world and because he made everything and sustains all of us right now by the very word of his power, that when he says, when he says that we too can have hope because of his resurrection, I thank you for that. And I pray your spirit would be on the loose, giving us hope. Father, I, I, I ask that you minister to people in this room that have questions that have never heard or thought much about physically being resurrected on a new earth. And I pray that your spirit helps unbelief. I pray that when we sing or think or talk about the future, that we cast our imagination into your promises not because we come up with them or because we've made them up or we can believe them on our own strength, but because there was this time in history that a dude rose from the dead and it changed everything. And I pray that we know that, um, that he, our Lord, our head, our husband, is a first fruits of what waits for all of us. And as we live life together, forbid that we try to do it alone, God. As we live life together, would you help us to know what it means to live now in light of that reality? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.